This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In February 1991, the Shia of southern Iraq rose and then fell against Saddam Hussein. According to our guest today, Barry Lando, this ill-fated uprising represents just one instance among many of Western complicity in Hussein's crimes against humanity. Today, the nations that are the loudest to denounce Saddam secretly back the dictator during his rise to power in the 1960s and 70s. Lando spent over 25 years as an award-winning investigative reporter with 60 Minutes. He is the author of the new book, Web of Deceit, The History of Western Complicity in Iraq from Churchill to Kennedy to George W. Bush. Barry Lando, welcome to Weekly Signals. Hi. Hi. How are you doing? Fine. Fine. Good to hear that. Now, let's just start off right at the beginning. How does Western complicity in the Middle East begin? At what point in time are we really looking at the uh, the entering of our uh, Western culture into Iraq and, and that area? Well, we're, you're talking about after the end of, uh, yeah, maybe, I suppose you can go back uh, hundreds of years to the first travelers, but I mean, the first major uh, political impact shaping Iraq came after World War One when the Turkish Ottoman Empire was, was uh, crumbling, it had been sick for years, and the, the British and the French and others uh, set about uh, picking up as much, much of the pieces as it could, and the British took uh, what is now uh, Iraq, was formerly Mesopotamia, essentially it was three provinces of the, of the Ottoman Empire, and you had the Kurds, the Shiites, and the Sunnis, uh, three peoples who had never had much love for each other were packed into this into this one country. Of course, they had always lived in this region before, but now they were under under British rule, and uh, there were tremendous warnings at the time to the British that uh, they were courting trouble by trying to rule over all these people in one bundle. Uh-huh. Now, did the British go in under the guise that they were bringing democracy to the Middle East, or did they, were well, they? Well, a- I, I guess everybody goes goes in with that guys when they marched into uh into Baghdad i think it was 1917 they announced that uh, they had come not to enslave the people but to bring liberty to liberate mm-hmm. them uh and of course uh, that wasn't really what they had in mind they were they were after the petroleum uh that was thought to be in that area they were already producing uh, petroleum in neighboring uh, persia iran and but they were very hungry in the, for for petroleum. They needed it for their ships to keep their empire going, and they also wanted military bases, uh, you know, to rule over that part of the world as well. Not that different from the U.S. today. Uh, initially, was uh, what we now know as Kuwait. Was that also a part of this uh, British <coughs> protectorate at that time? Well, Kuwait was uh, one of those provinces. Mm-hmm. And it was hived off by the British, mm-hmm. and essentially also for reasons of petroleum. Uh, Kuwait had great oil resources, and the British put it apart as kind of a, a separate country, uh, but that the British would be able to ex- exploit fully its, its oil resources. And the, the Iraqis ever since have felt, all Iraqis, not just Saddam Hussein, that Kuwait really was part of, uh, should be part of Iraq. 
So that was one of the was that a, a part of the sort of cultural psyche when they when Hussein invaded Kuwait in what he was doing was uh, nothing more than other Iraqi leaders before him had talked about doing. Mm-hmm. In fact, other leaders had one other leader had in fact started marching his troops towards uh, the border with Kuwait and backed off when when the British uh, sent troops in to to warn him not to mm-hmm. not to do it. But yes, uh, Saddam was simply following in uh, the tradition of his uh, national tradition of his country. I don't, I don't want to hopscotch too, too much here because there's so much to cover. But I do want to touch on um, Churchill's role in the in this part of the world in Iraq and what kind of an effect his role had on, on that area. His could you talk about that? Well, Church, yeah, Churchill back then when when uh, Iraq was founded after World War One. By the British, Churchill was one of the key ministers back there who took part in the founding of the country, of putting it together. And um, he, he uh, presided over one of the, the key conferences that, uh, that resulted in, in Iraq being created. And later on, uh, he also uh, decided that the best way to keep the peoples there under control, because they revolted almost immediately in 1920 after they found out what the British had in mind, uh, Churchill figured out that the best way to keep these people down was to use his royal, the new Royal Air Force, and uh, uh, British planes were sent to bomb and strafe, machine gun, uh, you know, insurgent villages. This is now 1920, 1921. And at one point, Winston Churchill even suggested that the RAF might consider using uh, chemical weapons against the insurgents. Right, mustard gas at that time, right? Right, but they ultimately never did, but uh, it's not... Not because Churchill didn't want it. Right. right. Now, now, when did the first? Uh, when did the U.S. first get involved in Iraq? About and uh, how did that happen? Well, the U.S. became increasingly involved in that part of the world in in the 1950s. Uh, well, of course, first of all, they did have a part of the oil con- British oil concession in Iraq uh, in 1920s. The U.S. U.S. companies were already cut into by the British into exploiting Iraq's oil resources. But politically, the U.S. really only became active in the 50s uh, as the British began, their empire became very tired and weary. They no longer had the resources to maintain it. So the U.S. moved uh, to take, essentially, to take Britain's place in, in much of the Middle East. And that was the height of the, the Cold War was heating up then. And so the United States uh, set about uh, organizing coup d'etat when necessary to, to knock off uh, leaders who were considered to be inimical to American and, and Western interests. They began in, in Iran in 1953 when they overthrew Mossadegh, and then in, uh, later on in 1959 they attempted to organize a, actually the assassination of an Iraqi leader, Qasem, General Qasem, who had been uh, op- giving openings to the Soviets, just in a way, just to balance uh, the, the Western influence, he had turned to the Soviets, and he was also trying to get a greater share of of Iraq's oil for Iraq. Uh, he was considered a, a dangerous leader by uh, by by Dulles and and uh, Eisenhower because of his, his playing uh, close with the Soviets, and so they organized an attempt to uh, assassinate him. And one of the five or six people who were part of that assassination team was Saddam Hussein. He was only about 20 years old then. So that was really the uh, the first U.S. connection wow. with him. 
So are you are you saying that he he was uh, an active part of a sort of a a group that was funded by the United States? Was was he an, in a manner of speaking an agent of the United States or just no? He I don't think he was an agent. He was being used right. by well, the right. CIA. Right. Was just one of the groups that uh, was involved with this attempt to assassinate okay. him. I think the the Egyptian uh, police were also supposed to be part of it. Right. Uh, Saddam was not an agent. He was just a young tough. He was supposed to be good with a gun. Right. He was a member of the Ba'ath Party, which uh, the, the U.S. Had, had taken a liking to because it was strongly anti-Soviet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was a convenient tool. I don't think he was an agent. Okay. The, we're speaking with Barry Landau. The book is Web of Deceit, The History of U.S. Complicity in Iraq, from Churchill to Kennedy to George W. Bush. Uh, I understand that d- during that period of time, the sort of transition between when Britain controlled uh, Iraq and that and much of the area of the Middle East uh, uh, in Iran and Saudi Arabia that there was a lot of contention between the United States and Britain sort of in the process of wresting control from the British is there was there did it ever rise above anything more than sort of a sort of terse diplomatic level or did it actually manifest itself in some other way well there was not not in Iraq as far as I know but I mean you remember in uh, there certainly was in in Suez in, in mm-hmm. 1956 mm-hmm. When when the Britain and uh, joined with France and Israel to invade Egypt and and were finally forced to back down by, by the United States mm-hmm. to to back off, but no, I don't know if uh, okay. you know to. It, it, it's, it's been my continue. I've read this another from other authors, and that is that uh, what our policy in the Middle East since at least World War II has been essentially to to make a Monroe Doctrine, extend a Monroe Doctrine. Or the United States into that area is that is that something that yeah in a, in effect yes I mean they uh, in fact Jimmy Carter even uh, even uh, the Carter he, he codified it when he he said that uh, remember after the the Russians had gone into Afghanistan at seventy nine Jimmy Carter said that uh, you know that there's no way that uh, that uh, the U S would stand by and let foreign powers occupy this valuable part of the world. Right. They were fearful then that that the Russians might might make a move on uh, on Iran or Iraq, but they they just wanted the Russians to know. Yeah, it was a kind of Monroe Doctrine. Now, the the first time I, I think most of our listeners uh, look back in the history of uh, U.S. And, and Iraq relations uh, is seeing uh, Donald Rumsfeld shaking hands with Hussein. Can you uh, tell us what Rumsfeld was doing there? Well, actually, uh, what what the people hadn't seen was that. In 1979, 1980, uh, Jimmy Carter gave a go-ahead to Saddam Hussein via uh, his allies, the Saudis. He gave Saddam a go-ahead to invade Iran because Khomeini was in power in Iran, and Khomeini was considered, uh, you know, the the enemy of the month of the United States. Khomeini also was, uh, you know. Spoke out strongly against the U.S. and the other uh, shakedoms and, and uh, of the Gulf. So in 1983, the war was going on with Iran now, and the United States wanted to increase its support uh, of Saddam, and it also wanted Saddam's help in in Lebanon. There was a hostage crisis there, so they felt Saddam would be might be of use for that. And so uh, Donald Rumsfeld was sent there to talk with Saddam, and. Uh, the State Department at the time had been worried that Saddam uh, had started using chemical weapons, which he had against the Iranian troops. And the State Department did, didn't, did not want to be in the position of being forced to denounce 
the, the Iraqis, who are almost de facto allies of the United States. But uh, Rumsfeld didn't bring up that subject at all with Saddam Hussein. He spoke about a lot of other subjects, but he never spoke about chemical weapons with Saddam. He mentioned it to Saddam's foreign minister, but never with Saddam himself. And the Iraqis continued to use chemical weapons uh, in the following years. And at the same time, the United States increased its support, uh, providing even a satellite intelligence to Saddam's uh, military commanders so they could target Iranian troops, uh, often targeting them with chemical weapons. Uh, there was one other incident, just to get, just to kind of flesh out just how far the United States was going to support Iraq during this period of time. It was about that time that the USS uh, Stark was was strafed by Iraqi fighter jets, and uh, right, that and was no, about, yes, towards the end of the war. Yeah, and uh, a, and a number of U.S. military uh, servicemen were killed, and yet the United States did nothing about that. No, they did nothing. As a matter of fact, that then led to an increased uh, U.S. Uh, naval presence in, in, in the Gulf. And the U.S., in fact, it's little known, but the U.S., in fact, took an active role then in the war uh, against Iran. Uh, some of the U.S. Uh, ships and, uh, and planes actually flying mission against uh, Iranian shipping and Iranian bases. Now, there's been, uh, there's been some speculation that uh, during the latter stages of the war between Iran and Iraq, that the Iranians appeared to be in a dominant position, and that when the U.S. shot down that uh, commercial airliner uh, that killed uh, close to 300 people, that that was, in, in a sense, a signal to the Iranians that we were willing to do anything to ensure that they were not the victor in that war against Iraq. Do you... Yeah, well, that, it possibly, though, though, I think uh, another explanation is, is that that occurred because of... Uh, aggressive actions of the U.S. ships uh, just off the coast of, of Iran. They weren't planning to shoot down uh, a commercial plane, though, but they were acting extremely aggressively and, mm -hmm. as I said, actually running missions mm -hmm. uh, against the Iranian Navy. They were luring Iranian ships out into the Gulf and then attacking them. And mm -hmm. uh, This was a, a, a kind of a secret war that was going on for, for months with the U.S. in, in effect fighting alongside Saddam Hussein. So, but this definitely a signal was being sent to Iran that there's only so much that we were willing to tolerate in, on behalf, on, in their war against, or their war with Iraq, I should say. Well, I think that was clear all along. They, the, uh, but I don't think the, the commer shooting down of the commercial airline, I think that was truly an accident. Mm -hmm. I don't think they really were mm -hmm. because uh, attempting to fire a, you know, a, a shell across the the bows, if you will, of, of, of Iran. Right. Well, there was, and then I read later on where the the, the uh, downing of the uh, Lockerbie, uh, the commercial airliner over Lockerbie, was in retaliation for that. But anyway, we'll move on. There's just so much to cover here because yeah. it, this is the thing when we discuss these the, the Middle East, particularly Iraq. I, there's a tendency, I think, on a part of a lot of Americans to think that history just started a few years ago and that they don't understand the context here. And so. Let's move well, on. I find it amazing how quickly people forget. It's yeah. almost as if we want to. Yeah. Uh, but in fact, as you say, this is a history that goes back, uh, you know, 30, 30 years at least, um, and which has, I think, resulted in at least 2 million uh, Iraqis and Iranians dying because of U.S. complicity in that part of the world. If, if you're going to characterize what George Bush has done uh in that region, 
what would you say? I mean, it seems like he's he's just thrown gasoline on a fire to me. I, what, what? How would you characterize it? You're talking about George W. Bush. George W. Yes. Well, <laughs> actually, can, can I just short circuit? Uh, yeah, let's his, go. His father had a terrible history yeah, there too. Yeah, yes, you're absolutely right. I, I wanted to go because because the the nexus of the George the Bush family here. I want to go to the first George Bush and the imposition of the sanctions. And I want to because this is part of that continuum. The United States uh, back in right after the well, after the first Gulf War, and 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 George Bush, the first, said uh, you guys should rise up. Uh, and overthrow Hussein. Well, yeah, this yeah. After and let's let's the, I want to uh, talk about that, and then we can uh, get to at, at the end of the first Gulf War, as as they were pushing Saddam's troops out of Kuwait, George Bush uh, publicly called on the people of Iraq to rise up and overthrow Saddam, and uh, they did. And uh, but and, and his call was relayed across Iraq by the by the CIA and special uh, secret radio stations and. Millions of pamphlets were dropped over Iraq with that message. And, mm-hmm. and so, as I said, the Iraqis did rise up, first the Shiites in the south, and then the Kurds. And the uprising spread like wildfire, and some of Saddam's defeated military units began to come over to the uprising. And at that point, George Bush and James Baker, as uh, Secretary of State, panicked, because what they had wanted was a nice, neat military coup to replace Saddam Hussein with somebody who'd look with more favor on, on uh, Washington. But they still wanted they, a military they, strongman, didn't they? Yeah, they just wanted to, they wanted to replace one regime by another, right? more friendly. And, but they didn't want you know, a, popu- a truly popular uprising, because they felt that could get out of control. Uh, the Kurds might try to break off and form an independent country. The Tur- Turkey wouldn't like that. Uh, the Shiites might, uh, the Iran might try to uh, to move into the Shiite areas of southern Iraq. So there was a lot of fear, and so what they did was they just pulled the plug on the the uprising. Well, didn't they? they didn't they I'm ordered just... American troops that were just a few kilometers away from where the uprising were going on were ordered to do nothing, even though the sl- slaughter was already beginning. Uh, Saddam's was permitted to continue using his battle helicopters to strafe and machine gun the uh, the uh, uprising. And when the insurgents came to American lines, and I spoke to a special forces officer who was there, when they came to American lines just a few kilometers away and said, look, we need help. We don't need you to fight for us, but we need arms and ammunition. The Americans, on orders from the Pentagon, destroyed all the arms that they had captured from the Iraqi army, rather than turn them over to the insurgents. Right. And the U.S. refused to even meet with insurgent leaders to, to listen to their demands. Well, and as a result, Saddam crushed the uprising. The number of deaths Shiites killed probably could have been at least 100,000 or more. Well, you know, I, I never bought the explanation that uh, Storm and Norman Schwarzkopf was snookered into allowing them to use the helicopters. It did seem... Uh, that in their agreement with uh, with the defeated Iraqi army, it just seemed to me that was uh, that was a PR um, uh, stance on the part of the U.S. military that they, in fact, as you said, did not want to see what is well. Now we see the we we see the seeds of what you were talking about occurring today, and that brings us up to George W. Bush here. What is what is yeah, going well, to happen? I, well, one thing I would I might disagree with you about the Schwarzkopf. I think he. He may have just been stupid in allowing them originally to, to continue to use their helicopters, but there was no reason they couldn't have, uh, have gone back on that permission when they saw how Saddam was using them. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
So that brings us to today. You were, as you were describing, that the fear was that the the Iranians would influence the Shiites in in the south, the Kurds in the north, and the Sunnis who were in the middle. Um, that's what we're seeing today happen. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, the, I think the, uh, the kind of sad irony is if uh, if Bush Senior had actually supported the the uprising back in '91. This is 2020 hindsight, but if he had, if he had supported the uprising, yeah. American troops would not necessarily have had to go to Baghdad. Just let the Iraqis make their revolution. Uh, it's it's difficult to say that the situation then could have been anywhere as terrible uh, as it is now. Right. If it had, if it had happened, in other words, the now we we truly see the, the Iranians really are threatening southern uh, Iraq. Uh, and in the interim, at, at least uh, at least a million Iraqis have died. Right in in that period because of the sanctions and because of the war and the, the, the infrastructure and the war. They've had it. people don't realize it, but Iraq, the P- Iraqis who are who are who have come of age to a really governing Iraq today have gone through twenty five thirty years of absolute hell. Yeah, yeah. I mean, literally, they've probably lost about ten percent of their population. And we expect them somehow to act like rational beings. Right. And so that's the that's the the, the irony of it all. Well, and in addition to that, haven't they lost uh, between two and three million uh, people uh, due to uh, a mass migration on the part of the? Absolutely yeah. sure. No, the the, the 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 deaths are just the beginning. There's been mass migration. There's been you know millions of kids who have maybe not starved to death, but who who who, who starved for years. Yeah. And uh, a, a terrible history that we really have forgotten. Yeah. We're speaking with Barry Lando. Uh, the book is Web of Deceit. I, I think at the beginning of the show, in the introduction, I identified you as a, a reporter for 60 Minutes. You were a producer there. and you've Yeah, it, except producers really uh, are and were reporters for 60 Minutes. We, okay. They really report the pieces that you see there. I'll put a slash in between then, uh, reporter, producer. But there, there's a uh, internet uh documentary that that's up called the trial of saddam hussein you'll never see uh and and you've produced that uh it's it's never been shown in the united states although it's been shown around the world have have you tried to get it shown in the united states well the the agent in 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 paris who had it i I, you know did did try to get it shown in the united states it was shown in canada and it was shown in in several european countries japan australia but not in the u.s so Mm -hmm. when i saw it up on youtube i decided to uh to put it on on my blog and uh, try to reassemble it. Yes, there's. I mean, there's. There are bits of it on YouTube. Yeah. It's a shame that I, I I was trying to find a copy of it or get access to it somewhere in its complete form and and uh, nowhere to be found. It's something that everyone should at, at least go online and check the the YouTube. YouTube well, I think the, the people or the person who's putting it up on YouTube, I think, is putting uh, an assembly together oh, on YouTube so that it, it will be able to be viewed. Well, we've run out of time. I, there's, uh, there's just so many other things. I, I think we have this doomsday scenario with the Kurds in, in the north and Turkey, and there's just so many things to talk about here. Uh, but unfortunately, we've run out of time, Barry Lando. The book is A Web of Deceit, The History of U.S. Complicity in Iraq, from Churchill to Kennedy to George W. Bush. Thank you for being here on Weekly Signals. Okay, and I invite you also, if your viewers want mm-hmm. to, or listeners want to, take a look at my blog, BarryLando.com. Very good. We'll link to it at our site, too. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Mm 
To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals.